If you're looking for something to do this May 30th through June 2nd, why don't you join us at CrimeCon in Nashville, Tennessee? We can all rub elbows with people like John Walsh, John Douglas, and Chris Hansen. Come and visit Murder in the Rain on Podcast Row, where we'll be sitting next to some of our own favorite podcasts. You can get 10% off your tickets by using code RAIN at checkout at CrimeCon.com. Armoire makes getting dressed easy. With a clothing rental membership from Armoire, build the perfect wardrobe with brands that are high quality, unique, and recommended just for you. All you have to do is take a five-minute style quiz and select items from your dynamic, personalized closet. The styles show up to your door in as little as two days. And when you're ready for new clothes, just swap them out and choose more styles. Like many of you, my personal style has evolved over the years. But if I want to try something new, sometimes it's hard to know what pieces will work for me. Rather than going to the mall for hours or spending too much money on pieces I might not like, Armoire allows me to rent high-quality designer clothes for any occasion. I can try styles I never considered before without worrying about the store's return policy, like a pair of faux leather pants for my new band. Of course, all of this sounds great, but what's even better is that it's a woman-founded business. You benefit from finding the perfect outfits, all while supporting a business that was built by women just like us. Right now, our listeners can give Armoire a try and get up to 50% off their first month. That's up to $125 off. Just visit armoire.style slash murder in the rain. That's armoire.style, A-R-M-O-I-R-E dot style slash murder in the rain, one word, to get up to 50% off your first month and never worry about what to wear again. Try Armoire today. With Mother's Day around the corner, are you thinking about a truly special gift for your mom or the motherly figure in your life? Let me tell you about mylifeinabook.com. It's a unique service that turns your mom's life stories into a beautiful book. Pretty cool, right? Here's how it works. Every week, mylifeinabook.com will send your recipient a question via email. These can be pre-written questions about, for example, your mom's life or any custom questions that you want to ask. And then she can either type her response or record her voice. And mylifeinabook.com compiles all of her responses into a beautiful keepsake book. And guess what? They can even create an audiobook using her voice recordings. It's like preserving her voice and her stories forever. Imagine discovering stories about her youth, adventures, and the challenges she overcame. This book becomes a legacy, something you and future generations can treasure forever. Your mom's given you a lifetime of stories. This is your chance to give her a way to share them. Obviously, we love anything surrounding storytelling. It's what we do. So to be able to gift this to my mom, to not only hear her stories, but the stories of my grandparents and other family members, it will create a cherished gift for all of us to enjoy. Check out mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN at checkout for 10% off. Create an unforgettable gift for your mom this Mother's Day. That's mylifeinabook.com and use the code RAIN for 10% off today. This is Murder in the Rain, where each week Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough tell true crime stories of the Pacific Northwest. 
Murder in the Rain contains graphic content. Listener discretion is advised. One of the hobbies I took up over the COVID quarantine not long after taking up TikTok was letter writing, in particular, sending letters to convicts that I had planned to cover in my cases for the show. I've yet to cover the three cases from the convicts that have written me back, but that's about to change today. This particular case has long been requested by both listeners and TikTok followers, and it's pretty big, so it will be shared in two parts. The gist of the letters I sent were essentially explaining who I am, explaining the show, what I plan to do with the information, if any, that they share with me, and to offer the opportunity for the person to speak on the case themselves or really anything they wish to share. If you asked me what my goal was, I would say it was simply to have their voice as a very small part of the show. I'm not under the guise that they're going to give me new information about their case or anything like that. But by offering them the opportunity to give some sort of statement, I would be fulfilling part of our goal of the show, which is to share the humanity from some of these horrible crimes that these people have committed. I'm in no way excusing the bad things any perpetrator has done in any of our episodes, but I think it's perfectly normal to want to understand them a bit more. Some folks show remorse, whether contrived or true. Some don't show any. Some show that they are where they belong in prison, while others desperately try to fight their sentence. And I think I was trying to get from the horse's mouth, so to speak, a little bit closer to learning that information about each of the people I wrote to. After sending two batches of letters, I did start to question my own reasoning and whether or not it was moral in my own definition of the word, or even adding to the cases. I'd much rather speak to a family member of a victim or law enforcement, etc., so I stopped sending them. But I pulled out a letter from a person I wrote to who signed his letter as Deo about a year ago, and I reread it, and I found it very honest. And while not disputing anything in particular, he wasn't free with information, but he was open to sharing more should we have a letter writing friendship of sorts, meaning he wasn't going to tell me anything without me reciprocating. And I will note I have yet to write him back. There's one line in particular I found interesting and relevant to our show. Quote, I am not a monster or a guinea pig for info or study. Regardless of how I'm viewed, I'm still a member of the human family. Despite the fact that he did make it clear that he wondered if I might be writing him to do something that's self-serving and for profit, I think he got what I was doing, which made me feel a little bit better about my original request. Not saying that I'm going to start another letter writing campaign anytime soon, but that was a little bit validating as to what we do with the show when we talk about perpetrators. Now, I think I can speak for all three of us when I say we are 100 percent behind the victims we talk about and their families. We 99 percent of the time truly loathe the perpetrators we talk about, but we absolutely want a more just judicial system. And we have a very strong curiosity to understand the mind of these people that commit these vicious crimes. That being said, let's dive into today's case. 
Oregon has seen its fair share of serial rapists and killers, but few have gained the title prolific. One in particular earned that title in the late 1980s. In today's case, we're going to discuss the origin story of a man who was known on the streets as Steve the Gambler, a man who had a wife and a child at home, who owned a successful business, and who cruised the streets at night looking for a vulnerable female to be his next victim. This is the Malala Forest Killer, Part 1. The Denny's on Southeast McLaughlin Boulevard in Oak Grove, Oregon, was busy most of the time. As a 24-hour establishment, it was not uncommon to have patrons in the wee hours of the mornings. Such was the case on August 7, 1987. Inside the restaurant were the normal sounds of mastication, pouring coffee, and the murmurings of polite conversation. The patrons were unaware of any potential wrongdoings happening just outside the front door. That was until someone opened that door. Just after 3 a.m., a man named Kurt finished up his late night slash early morning meal when he stumbled upon a potential crime. At nearly the exact time he was walking out the door, another man named James made his way out of his car towards the restaurant, and he too noticed something was very off. As James strolled through the door, he was startled when he heard a woman's scream cut through the quiet night, and he quickly surveyed the dark parking lot to see the shapes of two people in one of the far corners. When Kurt walked outside, he also heard the woman scream. As he looked toward the parking lot, he saw a woman attempting to run from a man. She screamed out, help me, please help me, rape, I'm being raped. The two men quickly met eyes and knew they had to intervene. They both moved toward the two silhouettes in the parking lot. When they got closer, they realized the woman was completely nude, and the man who was fully dressed was on top of her in a position that looked like he was indeed trying to rape her. One of the men shouted at the man. Startled by their voices, the man jumped off the woman and ran behind the building next door. Kurt considered running after him, but he had seen something shiny, likely a knife, in the man's hand and decided against it. As the two men reached the woman, they realized how bad the situation was. She was covered in blood, with it actively gushing out of her neck, which had been slit. She was coughing and spluttering. Her body had stab wounds everywhere. James stayed with her to try to control the blood while Kurt ran inside to get help. At this time, more people raced out of the restaurant to see if they could help the woman. Within moments, she had stopped breathing, and one of the patrons, a man named Charles, attempted CPR while James continued to keep pressure on her many severe wounds. It became clear that their attempts would not be enough, and they may have just witnessed a murder if help didn't get there faster. Around the time they realized that the woman might not make it, one of the witnesses looked up to see a man meandering nearby watching them. He then called out, that's him. That's the son of a motherfucker. Somebody get his license plate number. Unfortunately, it was so dark in the parking lot that no one could see the plate clearly, only that it was fixed to the back of a light blue Nissan truck. The man jumped into the truck and sped away, nearly crashing into other cars parked nearby. But he went in the wrong direction. There was no way out. It was a dead <gasps> end which meant he had to turn his truck around and go back past the horde of people in order to get out the front entrance. Meanwhile, two of the patrons who rushed outside to help, Stan and Richard, jumped into their own cars and moved to block the exits of the parking lot. Hell yeah. Group effort. I love it. I know. I love it. So the driver 
realizing he couldn't get out the way he had planned, decided to pick up speed and head right over the curb onto the sidewalk, eventually making it out and speeding south down McLaughlin Boulevard. Richard took off after him. Richard caught up quickly and was focused on that damn license plate. As he got closer to the back of the man's truck, he was annoyed to find that the license plate light was not working. But eventually, he inched up close enough to figure it out. Oregon CYW-194. He pulled over, wrote it down for police, and then headed back to the restaurant. By the time Richard returned to the Denny's parking lot, there were multiple police cruisers and paramedics at the scene. While paramedics attempted to revive the unconscious woman, Richard handed over the license plate number to police. The woman was then rushed to the local hospital and subsequently pronounced dead. Police spent the next several hours combing through the parking lot for evidence, which would eventually pay off. After circling the buildings and parking lots several times, one of the officers found something resembling a weapon in one of the nearby bushes. As he pulled it out, carefully not to disturb potential fingerprint evidence, he noticed it was a Regency Sheffield stainless steel kitchen knife with a brown handle and a five-inch blade. This was promptly sent to the Oregon State Police Crime Lab for analysis. The woman, dubbed Jane Doe, was processed quickly. Her hands were placed in bags to protect potential evidence under her nails, while a technician scanned her body carefully with an ultraviolet light to look for semen or other bodily fluids. There were none, which surprised most everyone since she was naked and violently attacked. When the bags from her hands were removed, they began to scrape under her nails to look for perpetrator skin cells, but unfortunately, she had bitten her nails so far down that it was impossible to locate anything. The medical examiner noted that there were 11 stab wounds throughout Jane Doe's body, with 10 of them being incredibly deep wounds. Three of the stab wounds were on her posterior side, or her back, while eight were on the anterior side, or the front one of which was directly in her throat where the neck and the chest meet. Her body also had several slash wounds, including both her breasts, one nearly taking off a nipple, and her hands, which were so deep that the bone was exposed. The examiner noted that these hand wounds were defensive and that she had likely tried to get the knife out of her attacker's hands by grabbing the blade. She also had bruising on each of her wrists, which was indicative of having been tied up, which would explain the shoelaces found at the crime scene. The Portland Police Bureau's identification division was able to ID the victim based on her fingerprints. Soon, the Jane Doe who died after a vicious attack in a Denny's parking lot had a name. Well, a couple of names, actually. Jennifer Lisa Smith, or Jenny, was born on November 14, 1961. Being just 25, she had an arrest record more fitting for someone older, but that was the life of someone in her line of work. Jenny, who went by Gypsy Rosalind Castillo on the street, was a sex worker who often worked areas such as Union Avenue and Wygant Street. Thanks to the help of the Good Samaritans who were present at the time of the attack, police had an excellent idea of who committed this atrocious crime against Jenny. The light blue Nissan pickup with Oregon license plate CYW-194 led police to a man named Dayton Leroy Rogers. Now here are some names for y'all. Orvis and Jasper L. Rogers added to their growing family when their son Dayton Leroy was born in Moscow, Idaho on September 30, 1953. He was one of seven children, three of which were biological, 
Dayton and his two sisters, and four were adopted, three sisters and one brother. Dayton's parents were very religious, adhering to raising their children according to the Bible and their Seventh-day Adventist faith. They were also incredibly traditional, with Jasperell living as a housewife rearing the children, and Orvis, a head of household, working and making money to support them. Those are some real Moscow names. They really are. Some and Seventh-day old, old Adventist. In Orvis's eyes, that's how it should be. And he also gave the impression that he believed men were definitely better than women. Women were either good or bad and pure or dirty. He said on more than one occasion, women who had sex prior to marriage, quote, should be stoned. Like many men with this point of view, meaning traditional, religious, misogynistic, and incredibly strict, he also dished out very harsh punishments regularly. The children would often be seen bleeding from wounds or with bruises over their body after any kind of perceived wrongdoing. I'm not sure if he was singled out, Perhaps this was the case for all of the children, but one of Dayton's family members reflected that he was punished nearly every day he lived at home. And these punishments were not for the faint of heart. There were times he was hit with a belt, a traditional old-timey punishment we hear about, but there were also times where he would have to place his hands on a surface while his father beat them with something heavy, one time even breaking his hand. This kind of violent and oppressive atmosphere was bound to develop someone with extremely deep issues. But people from Dayton's past don't believe he really ever showed signs of violence as a child. One former classmate noted that he only got into a physical fight once because a boy at church was calling him names. In junior high, he did get in trouble with the law for shooting a BB gun at passing cars. Then, like the origin story of many of the serial killers we discuss, his rebellious minor actions led him into weird sexual acts. He peeped on his sisters changing their clothes or into their swimsuits. He was obsessed with their feet, even admitting later that he would masturbate while fantasizing about their feet and clutching one of their shoes in his hands. As you can imagine, the sisters were often searching for their missing shoes. The family moved from one rural area to the next, living in places like Idaho, eastern Washington, and then back to Oregon. Dayton was sent away after the BB gun incident to go to a religious boarding school where he did very poorly. With the physical distance, the challenges at school combined with the emotional and physical abuse he received at home, it's no surprise that Dayton drifted apart from his family. He eventually dropped out of the school and moved away from his parents at the age of 16, deciding to live in Corvallis, Oregon, and work as a house painter. By age 18, he moved to Eugene. Dayton got married in 1972 at 18 years old to a 16-year-old Lutheran girl he had been briefly dating. His parents opposed his new bride, Julie, because she had previous issues with drugs and alcohol. But that relationship that he had been so adamant about wasn't even fulfilling to him because he was already seeking sex from other people within months of his nuptials. In August of 1972, Rogers picked up a 15-year-old girl who was out hitchhiking near Eugene. The pair spent a few hours together and stopped to have sex in a nearby field. He seemed pretty interested in her and asked to see her again, and she obliged. The next day, August 25th, he took her once again to the field and had sex with her. Later that night, she was admitted to Sacred Heart General Hospital in Eugene with a stab wound. <gasps> 
Once admitted, the girl told hospital staff that she had stabbed herself with a hunting knife, but the doctor had a suspicion that her story was fabricated. The wound was so deep and could have been fatal if she had not come into the hospital, and he felt she was covering for someone else because she could not have sustained the injury on her own. He called the police to notify them about the patient. Police stepped in and began asking Dayton Rogers, the man who dropped her off at the hospital, what had happened. He explained that he had met the girl two days prior and he had given her a ride. Though he didn't know her well, he was drawn to her, so he returned to her home where he dropped her off to see her again, but she wasn't there. So what does he do? He drives around the neighborhood hoping to see her, and lo and behold, right down the street, she's walking alone, bleeding profusely, hunched over in pain, so he helps her into the car and drives her to the hospital. The next day, the girl's mother called the detective working the case because she had spent several hours discussing the incident with her daughter because she, too, had her own suspicions about the story. After speaking with her daughter, the story ended up being a little bit different. The girl claimed that shortly after the two had been intimate, they were sitting in their post-coital bliss where they were holding each other and he was tickling her legs, and then he instructed her to close her eyes and lay back. She obliged, having had no reason to fear him before, but then suddenly she felt a piercing pain in her abdomen, describing it like a horse kick or a snake bite. She then looked down to see the handle of a knife sticking out of her stomach. She promptly pulled it out, looked at him and said, Dayton, I love you, to which he responded, oh my God, what did I do? As the girl repeatedly begged him to take her to the hospital, he seemed frantic, like not sure what to do or what to say. He even blurted out a proposal of marriage to her. Oh, my God. Even though he was already married and was actively stabbing her. (laughs) So after being asked several more times to take her to the hospital, he finally decided to. He, of course, made her promise that she would never tell anybody what really happened and that she would claim that she stabbed herself. The girl said that she had lied because he had made her feel like if she told the truth, he would kill her or, in her words, finish her off. At this point, police decided to speak to Dayton's wife, Julie. Julie confirmed that the night in question, he didn't return home until very late. When she asked where he had been, he claimed to have been at the hospital visiting one of his old girlfriends. I don't know how old it could be if she was 15. So his wife insists on going to see her. She's like, take me to go see this ex-girlfriend. Now, Julie gets to the hospital and she lays her eyes on this girl who has blonde hair and blue eyes and realizes the girl looks exactly like her, like a twin. Very creepy. After speaking to his wife, police were ready to talk to Dayton himself. He agreed to meet and they made him cozy in an interrogation room. They decided to play the recording of the girl's statement just to see how he would react. After he listened, they asked him if he understood, to which he nodded yes. And then they asked what he had to say and whether or not she was telling the truth. And he shook his head no. Eventually, he explained that his marital life was just not going as expected and the troubles led him to seeking love elsewhere. He went on to tell the story of that day. And a lot of it sounded very similar to the girls. uh, But one major difference, he claimed that the knife seemed to just miraculously appear in her stomach and that the devil must have taken over his body. Uh, It happens all the time. (laughs) He was arrested for first degree assault and was taken to undergo a psychiatric examination, which basically included some basic tests to see if he was sane. I'm sorry, assault? Yeah. 
yeah. not attempted murder. Uh, did they have a law in in the early eighties oh, about that like I minors? Don't I don't know if they did. I should have looked that up. But somebody mm. somebody Google that. <laughs> he was then interviewed again, where he took back everything he said before, claiming that the girl had stabbed herself and that she had been taking drugs when it happened. The evaluation concluded and the doctor believed he had no impairments with his judgment and no mental disease, which meant they could pursue that first degree assault. And after that, they plea bargained and he was charged with second degree assault and he didn't even go to jail. He just got four years probation. Wow, I can't even believe that. (laughs) She said, not shocked. (laughs) Rather than keep his nose clean and stay faithful to his wife, Dayton got creative with his sexual escapades and started to include his wife pairing the situation with heavy drinking. Six months after he stabbed the 15-year-old, Dayton and Julie brought two teenage runaways into their home. This quickly became a sexual relationship. He became very close with one of the girls, which caused a major division between him and his wife, and she opted to leave him, moving in with two men that she knew, strictly as friends, I think, but that would have been hilarious. So she's like, well, I'm in Mm -hmm. in an open relationship with these guys now. This, of course, enraged him and he threatened to kill all three of them if she didn't come home. And she did eventually give in and come home for a short period of time. The heavy drinking continued and it soon allowed Dayton to act out some of his more violent sexual fantasies. And then one day in August of 1973, he once again acted out violently. While his wife was out, he went into a drunken rage and began to beat both of the teen girls with a beer bottle. He hit them repeatedly on their heads until he snapped out of it and fled from the house. The girls were able to call the police and Dayton was soon arrested. I should note that as he fled in his 1967 Camaro, belligerently drunk, he crashed his car into another car so he wasn't really hard to find. They just kind of pulled up and there he was. He was then charged with second and third degree assault. While he was in jail, Julie cleaned house, disposing of several knives and a gun. This wasn't to aid him in any way, but this was a precaution because she feared for her own life. She knew it could have easily been her that he raged out on, and since he would likely be getting out of jail soon, she figured better safe than sorry. Once again, while in jail, Dayton was required to have a psychiatric examination. This didn't impede him from making bail and being let out of jail. He did visit the psychiatrist's office several times to partake in the regular testing, but in the end, the doctor believed Dayton had pseudo-schizophrenia and antisocial traits, which could explain some of the misconduct he had participated in most of his life. He was deemed a sexually dangerous person, and he needed intensive therapy. So even though the prosecution wanted him in prison, the judge allowed a not guilty by reason of insanity plea by the defendant. He ended up being committed to the Oregon State Hospital in Salem in March of 1974. During his stay at the hospital, he lived in the maximum security ward. Initially, he was exhibiting signs of unrealistic reasoning, living in a fantasy state. He was grandiose and was extremely self-centered. Shocker. He eventually realized that his behavior was getting him nowhere. So he started falling into line, doing his homework and therapy, stopping himself from acting out and, you know, being what we call a model patient. 
So he was moved into medium security. And despite the fact that he was telling his therapist his dreams were both sexual and violent, and he often thought about tying women up, and that he was very open about the fact that he thought about raping other women and girls while having sex with his wife, he was moved into minimum security. You know, no big deal. Perfect. That's cool. It's just just what you should think well, about. Well, he was being open about it, you know? I mean, maybe. Maybe people... I don't know the statistics, but maybe if you talk about it, you're less likely to do it. I don't know. But that was some dumb... That was a dumb move. Yeah, I think if it's something that's alarming, it should be like, oh, let's work on that like now. A, or an extra amount of time in yeah. deep therapy or something. I don't know. He remained at the hospital for a few months, but was released to the public in December of 1974 after his doctor said his, quote, mental illness was recovered to the degree that he is no longer a menace to himself or others. This, of course, was opposed by the Lane County Deputy District Attorney, Darrell L. Larson, who called him, quote, both sexually and physically violent and without question is a murder case waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. Not sure if that guy was just good at his job or a psychic, but we're here talking about it today. So he was clearly right. Julie, who had lived a lot of life for someone so young, took the opportunity of Dayton's hospitalization to get the fuck out. She ended up divorcing him. This, of course, came after he called her from the hospital and told her that he had become a doctor. I, that might have been her last straw. I don't know. But I love I love the like narcissism behind that. What Did the... you know you don't have to go to college to be a doctor? You can just be around you, them for a while. You can just be a patient. Wow. <laughs> if you have at least five doctors, you get you get to be a doctor, too. It's, it's like a buy five, get one free. <laughs> After his release from the Oregon State Hospital, Dayton got a job as a house painter in Salem and moved into an apartment with his church minister that he had been meeting with while committed. A few months later, he met a gal named Sherry Miller. He was very taken with Sherry and even got along with her family. So he soon moved out and got his own apartment in Woodburn so that he could be closer to his new love. Sherry and Dayton were married in October of 1975. And like his marriage before, it wasn't enough and he continued to sleep with other women. Their marriage was challenged within weeks when he not only lost his job, but lost interest in his sexual relationship with his wife. He began going to bars, getting drunk, doing drugs, and having even more casual sex with strangers. The fighting between the couple became more and more severe until one day Dayton left. His wife Sherry didn't hear from him again until she learned that he had been arrested for rape. After leaving Sherry, Dayton was back to cruising the streets in his car du jour looking for vulnerable women or girls. And to be honest, I doubt he ever stopped doing that. In December of 1975, he was cruising near the fairgrounds in Salem when he spotted a pretty girl sitting in a Chevy Malibu. He pulled over next to her and approached. He told her he was from Eugene and was in town and wanted to know where he could go for a good time. After casual conversation about what she did and where she lived, Dayton learned that she was 18 years old, and while the fun he sought happened in bars, she wasn't able to get into them. He soon offered her a beer and pot so they could make their own party. Now, I'm sure all of us as kids heard the cliche, don't take candy from strangers and don't help grown men looking for puppies in the park, you know, or, or similar. But remember, those old cliches started somewhere, and unfortunately, they applied in this story. Dayton told this 18-year-old girl that he was selling puppies for $50, but he liked her so much and knew she didn't have a job that he was willing to give her one for free. The problem was the puppies were at his aunt and uncle's home in Woodburn, which was about 20 minutes away. 
The girl loved the sound of a new puppy, so she climbed into his car and they began to drive away. Rather than head to Woodburn, Dayton drove a little bit further east to an isolated location outside of Canby, Oregon, which is a city that is primarily made up of farms, so finding an isolated area is not that hard to do. He parked on a gravel road, and the girl definitely became suspicious as she looked around and didn't see any houses. Not knowing what to do, she sat quietly and avoided showing concern. Eventually, Dayton violently grabbed her out of nowhere and shoved her into the back seat where he used electrical wire he picked up from the floor of the car to tie her wrists and ankles. Soon, he was forcing her pants down, pulling out her tampon, and raping her. After assaulting her twice, it was now the wee hours of the morning and she begged to be allowed to go outside to use the bathroom. He untied her to allow her to do so and she took the opportunity to run. Oddly enough, he didn't seem to follow her and she eventually reached a house, banged on the door and was let in to use the phone to call the police station. Police arrived at the home and took her statement, noting that she had marks on her wrists and ankles and that she had claimed to be raped twice over a three to four hour time frame. They then drove to where Dayton had parked his car, where she told them he had parked, which was still there, stuck in the mud. So they see a man sleeping in the car. And since they brought the girl with them... They all walked up to the car, peered in the window where she could make a visual confirmation that, yeah, that's the man that kidnapped and raped me. How crazy is that? First off, this guy's got some real car problems. Oh, I know. <laughs> it's constant cars and you will find out constant stuck in the mud. <laughs> Jeez. And then, yeah, to bring her, it's like, and if he wakes up and is like, goes into a rampage or something, yeah, what that's if, so scary. They, what if he had guns in there? Like... The, I know they're police officers and there's probably two of them, but still, that still. that is a. I don't think that would happen today. No. <laughs> it's bizarro. Anyway, she was taken to a nearby hospital for a rape kit and treatment and her family picked her up. Dayton was taken into custody and interviewed where he acted shocked that this girl would say that he raped her. He spun a tale about how they were drinking and making out and how he drove her back to her car because she needed to meet her boyfriend. But the boyfriend never arrived, so they went back out again and had sex in, quote, many positions. He then started making her sound like some kind of narcissistic tease, claiming that she bragged about the size of her breasts, talked about how many times she had been raped because she was, quote, cute. <gasps> Have you ever met someone like that? What the fuck? No. And he even went as far as to call her the aggressor in the situation. He was released and finally went home to his wife, who was happy to attempt to reconcile their marriage. However, the next month, he was indicted on first-degree rape, but allowed to remain free until his trial date. A month after his indictment, before that trial ever started, he was once again out cruising and picked up a 19-year-old girl walking to the bus station in Salem. She had apparently been visiting her boyfriend at the Oregon State Correctional Institution and needed to catch a Greyhound back to Oregon City where her grandmother lived. Since it was raining and cold, she accepted a ride from Dayton. Rather than taking her directly to the bus station or even home to Oregon City, he asked her if she had ever visited Silver Falls State Park. And side note, if you haven't, it's beautiful. You should go. It's, it's a great height. Anyway, she hadn't. And he suggested that since it wasn't far and she had a couple of hours to spare, that they go to the park and smoke some pot and drink some beer. 
At the park, he convinced the girl to climb into the back seat under the guise that they should listen to some music while they smoke and that all of his cassette tapes were in a box in the back. But of course, when she tried to come back over to the front seat, he took a knife out of his glove box and held it to her and made her stay in the back seat. He claimed he wouldn't hurt her, but then he demanded that she get on her hands and knees. He then used wire to bind her wrists, made her lay on her stomach, and then he bound one of her ankles to her wrist in a hog tie. He then ripped off her clothes and began penetrating her with his fingers. Eventually, he moved to fixating on her feet, opting to kiss and bite them while moaning and mumbling the names of other women. Like that, I can't imagine something creepier than that right now. That literally made my vagina like nauseous. Seal back up? Yeah. (laughs) Another car pulled into the parking lot and interrupted him. So he did untie her, but he told her, I may need to kill you or even hold you for ransom. He then drove her to an isolated logging road near the Malala River and told her he couldn't let her go because she would go to police. She begged, insisting that she wouldn't. He once again tied her up using strips of her own ripped clothing and started to strangle her with a ligature. She fought back so hard that one of her hands broke free from her bindings and she was able to pick up one of her shoes and hit him on the side of the head. After a brief struggle, he did gain the upper hand again, so she began to reason with him, explaining that he could just drop her off at her grandmother's house. She wasn't home. She wouldn't call police. And for some reason, he decided he would do that. So he took her home. Once safe inside, she, of course, called the police. That girl's testimony to police would take place three days later because her assault happened over the weekend. And I don't know if they weren't open or they just weren't equipped to Mm. interview her. But when she was finally there being interviewed about what happened, another call came into the station and alerted police to two more sexual assaults. And this probably was the next day. Two teenage girls arrived at the station ready to tell police about the ordeal that had happened to them. The girls were 15 and 16, and they went to school together. Earlier that day, one of the girls missed her bus and called the other for a ride, but that girl's car wouldn't start. So they're like, well, I guess we're walking. So they were making their way to McNary High School in Salem. As they walked along Chimawa Road near the I-5, a yellow Mustang pulled up near them and asked where they were headed. They said school and the man offered them a ride since it was raining. The girls climbed in and rather than go straight to the school, it was around lunchtime. So they went to Bob's Big Boy Hamburger, where the guy bought them burgers, fries and Cokes. He seemed really nice. And since it was already lunch, they weren't in a hurry to get back to school. So he was like, let's go to Cascade Park and drink some beer. Eventually, they told him, hey, we need to go back to school for afternoon classes. And at that time, it was like 3 p.m. And he's like, well, it's already over. Let's let's just hang out. Each girl had about two beers, but the man had at least a six pack to himself. Then out of nowhere, he told the girls that if they did what he said, they wouldn't get hurt. He then reached into the glove box and pulled out a knife with a brown handle and a long blade. He then reached back and pulled out twine and tied their hands and feet together behind their backs. One of the girls got her hand loose and attempted to untie the other while he was telling them about how he was going to have sex with both of them. 
He eventually untied them, assuming he was about to have sex with them. And one of the girls said, you can do whatever you want to me. Just leave her alone. So he did undress and rape her. This rape lasted a little bit over a minute or two. And he told the girls that his cousin taught him how to do this, meaning rape. And he said he basically was not going to ejaculate inside of them and leave his sperm behind for evidence for the police. Like that, that's so, such a weird line. Yeah. Like, I don't know. I know. I, I don't think we ever find out if that was true or not. If there was a cousin that would have done that. It but... makes me wonder, too, if it wasn't a cousin teaching rape, but like a cousin that was raped someone else I or was like, you know, molesting him or something. When he was done attacking the girl, she asked to go outside and use the bathroom. Somehow, both girls managed to go together. One of them yelled, fuck you at him, and they ran. As the girls retold their story to police, they realized it was very similar to the last girl's account, the girl that was dropped off in Oregon City at her grandmother's house. They asked the girls to describe the man, and they said he had brown hair and eyes, a weird nose, a thin brown mustache, and was about 5'11 and 160 pounds. He had claimed his name was Steve Davis and that he was a salesman. The car he drove was a yellow Mustang with black interior, and they even remembered the license plate number, KXY646. The car belonged to Dayton Rogers. It was the one his wife drove. And just like that, Rogers racked up three more indictments, one for the first-degree rape of the Oregon City girl and two for the first-degree rapes of the Salem girls. Rogers pled not guilty by reason of mental disease or defect, and unfortunately, he was acquitted of the rape of the Oregon City girl. And I can't say for sure, but I believe he may have also been acquitted for the rape of the girl in Salem who wanted the puppy. Mm. But I never definitively found the outcome of that trial. Oh, I would assume so. I There's a pattern here because yeah. the rapes of the 15 and 16-year-old Salem girls were also acquitted. But... He was convicted of coercion for each of them. So that was a five-year minimum sentence per count. Now, this, of course, is infuriating. And police have since discussed that this was during a time where women were basically held accountable for rapes if they were drinking or doing drugs, which is absurd, but it still happens. Yeah. So even though he technically got a sentence of 10 years, five for each coercion charge, Dayton Rogers ended up getting paroled early from the Oregon State Correctional Institution in 1982. And it's like, how is he going to prison if he isn't being convicted because of insanity? Then how is he not automatically in being sent to the hospital? Uh, I think that was explained like somebody looked at him and said, nope, he knew he knew what he was doing. This jail time for this bitch. It's just like, how can it be both? I know. You know? It's like every like, year it's one or the other. You're acquitted, then you're put in the hospital, then you're acquitted, then you're put in jail. So how you're acquitted for being insane, but we're not going to put you in the place that people with mental health stuff go. We're going to put you in prison. Well, mm -hmm. if he can serve prison time, then he should be. Okay. After his release in 1982, he worked to turn things around. Somehow his marriage to Sherry survived and they had a son together. Having always got along with Sherry's father, he eventually went into business with him, opening a small engine repair store in Woodburn. After parole, Rogers was required to meet with a parole officer regularly. One of the more chilling aspects of those meetings, one that pretty much foreshadowed his life, was something that he said in his final parole check-in. Once an inmate has completed their parole period, there is an exit interview. When his parole officer conducted that interview, 
she asked him, is there anything from your past you would do differently? And he looked at her and he said, yes, next time I'm not going to leave a witness. Isn't that creepy as fuck? Because there's, there's nothing, nothing she could do. do. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> except to be like, notify hey, please. Um, limited resources that we already have. If you guys could just keep an eye on this guy in case. That's terrible. Oh. A few hours after Jenny Smith's very public murder, detectives searched the license plate number of the suspect that had fled the scene, and it led them to an address of a mobile home in Canby. When they arrived, they didn't see any signs of the light blue truck, but as they got out of their cruiser, they were met by the sounds of gunshots. A woman, Sherry Rogers, came out of the house and told them not to worry. It was just her father down the road. He was worried that there were prowlers approaching her house not police officers. They explained who they were, and eventually they even called the father to do the same so that he wouldn't continue shooting at them. Luckily, it was shooting in the air, but still, that's very eventful morning. Yeah. (laughs) Before interviewing Sherry, they received another call, so they had to go somewhere else in Canby, but they did return later to speak to her. When they returned, they explained they weren't there regarding the earlier gunshots. I think she was a little worried they were going to, like, arrest her dad. Mm. But they were actually there looking for the owner of the light blue truck registered to her address. She said she was a co-owner and that the other owner was her husband, Dayton Rogers. She mentioned to police that he could be found at his business, Small Engine Repair Unlimited, which was located in Woodburn. Before leaving to head to Woodburn, they did ask Mrs. Rogers if she could describe what time her husband left and what he was wearing. She did so, but was, of course, beginning to worry and wanted to know why they were so interested in her truck and her husband. Eventually, Dayton Rogers called his wife while the detectives were still there, and she explained that they were interested in the truck. He told her not to worry, but give the phone to the detectives. I want to talk to them. So she does. And they talk to him and he's like, why are you so interested in my truck and me? And they said, well, your truck was involved in a serious incident earlier this morning. And so he said, "Okay, well, come on down to my shop. I've been here all night, haven't left, and I'm happy to help in any way I can. It was about half past 5 a.m. when detectives arrived at the shop in Woodburn. Parked right outside was the light blue Nissan pickup truck, and as they walked in, they noted that it was still warm to the touch. As they made their way into the front door of the business, one of the detectives noticed a small droplet of what looked like blood just outside the building entrance. So he put a little piece of paper on it so they could come back and process it later. When Rogers arrived at the door to let the detectives in, he reeked like booze and he had red eyes and he appeared to have been up all night drinking. Detectives asked, and he was forthcoming, that he had been up all night drinking bourbon with strawberry mixer, and he was alone at the shop. That's the nastiest thing I've ever heard. Bourbon with strawberry mixer. He went on to say that he was working all night and he never left. When asked if someone else borrowed his truck, he said, nope, the truck has been here all night, too. Now, this was the perfect chance to call him out on a lie because the detective walked him out to the truck and asked him, Why is the engine still hot if it's been sitting here all night? He quickly explained that he had let the engine run for a while because he had to go and get a cup of coffee at the Safeway. Again, the detective pointed out that, hey, uh, there's a full pot of coffee right inside that shop where we just were. So he then backpedals and says, oh, well, I haven't gone to the Safeway yet. The car was just running and I got distracted by a phone call. A likely tale. Yeah. 
Detectives then turned to the apparent injury that Rogers had on his hand, which was all bandaged up. When asked how he injured it, he claimed to have cut it on a hacksaw, also mentioning when asked that he was left-handed, and then he pointed to the area of the shop where he had cut himself. The detective switched up the questioning again, asking about what he had been drinking. Earlier when asked, he had mentioned the bourbon and strawberry mixer, you know, the nectar of the mm-hmm. gods there. But when asked this time, he said he bought wine at 11 p.m. and he had been drinking it in the shop. He claimed to have bought it at a liquor store in miniature bottles. Now, this wasn't even something that was available. The only thing in miniature bottles are liquor. Yeah. And also, you know, I've lived in Oregon a long time. I don't think liquor stores are ever open that late. Yeah, I think they close at like 4 p.m. or something ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. So, he, you know, he just lied that after early, lie. but they, they close real early. This ain't Vegas. Before long, Rogers gave the detectives permission to take the hacksaw back to the station, search his trash for bottles, and even search his truck. Now that detectives had what they wanted in under 10 minutes, this all occurred, Jeez. they opted to read him his Miranda rights so that they could proceed with searching the premises. Rogers had asked before they left to take him to the station if he could set up the shop for the day so that it was ready when employees arrived. And they allowed him to do so, but they decided to just keep very close eyes on him. One of the detectives followed him around wherever he went and noticed that Rogers used his right hand to do almost everything, Mm. immediately noting that they believed he was lying about being left handed. And this detail would come up again throughout their investigation. While Rogers continued to get the shop ready, he basically just talked on the phone for a better part of an hour and other officers started arriving at the location and they brought a guest, a witness, Richard, who had chased the truck down at the crime scene. Richard immediately confirmed that the truck was the same truck, but for added verification, they turned on the headlights to check and make sure that the license plate light was out. Oh, that's smart. Yeah, it was. And it was out. And the license was the same license plate. So they got him. (sighs) So though they hadn't yet arrested Rogers, they had only read the Miranda rights. After the verification by the witness, they decided to formally arrest him for the murder of the nude victim that at the time was still dubbed Jane Doe, but who would eventually be identified as Jenny Smith. Rogers was processed at the jail where his fingerprints and photos were taken, all of his personal items were cataloged and bagged, and where they attempted to take fingernail scrapings. Unfortunately, just like Jenny Smith, he was a nail biter and there was nothing to scrape. It was basically bitten down to the quick, as they say. Mm. A doctor reviewed the cut on his hand, which he had claimed was made by his hacksaw, and quickly noted that, nope, there is no evidence of a serrated blade. It was highly likely caused by something akin to a knife blade. Rogers was indicted on one count of aggravated felony murder. That charge was eventually added to when he was indicted once again for additional charges, including three counts of aggravated felony murder and two counts of aggravated murder, all of which were for Jenny's murder. Though Rogers was in custody and there was a lot already connecting him to the crime, detectives had a lot to do to piece together what actually happened and build a solid case against him. It didn't take long for the people in Jenny's life to come forward and help police put together Jenny's movements the night before she died. Though some might assume as a street sex worker she might not have a real family or even be loved, she did and she was very much loved. 
She shared a home with her ex-husband and their children. She spent time with her grandmother and other family members, and they noticed when she didn't come home as expected. In fact, the morning of August 8th, she was expected to pick up her kids at her grandmother's house, and she never arrived. The last time her friends and family saw her was on August 6th. Her grandmother saw her at 9.45 p.m. on August 6th when Jenny asked for a ride because she was having car trouble. Later that night, she had been over at a friend's house at Northwest 7th and Skidmore Street with another sex worker. She left the home with the other woman at around 12.30 a.m. August 7th, but the friend whose home they had been visiting wasn't sure where they went. Just after 3 p.m. on August 8th, police made a visit to Jenny's apartment that she shared with her ex, Frederick Smith. They searched the premises, but they really only had one goal, and that was to rule out that Jenny had owned the knife that she had been killed with. They searched the kitchen and noted that the couple didn't own any Regency Sheffield brand knives. Frederick assured police that Jenny was highly unlikely to carry any weapons with her, and she had never been a violent person. When asked if she had any issues with Johns in the past, he said there was one. It was a guy in a white car who chased her with a stick, but unfortunately he had no other details. The next stop for police was to visit the other sex worker that Jenny had been with the morning she was murdered. She explained how it was a common security precaution to work in pairs in the event that there was an issue. During this pairing, one girl would work finding Johns and taking dates, and the other would drive and follow not only to be backup should something go wrong, but to act as lookout during the date. She had been with Jenny right before her last date. They drove to their usual intersection of Union and Wigand, where Jenny's car was also parked from the previous night. While Jenny was out waiting for work on the street, her partner had fallen asleep in Jenny's car. She woke to the radio at around 1 a.m., and then she heard Jenny yell out her name twice. When she sat up, she saw a light-colored truck driving toward Jenny. Jenny was chatting with the driver and then turned and waved to her friend. The wave she had given was actually a signal that meant she didn't need to be followed. This would be typical of someone she had already gone on dates with before. Mm. She had to have some kind of trust in him. Her partner was adamant about that. As it turned out, Jenny and Dayton Rogers were acquainted. Through interviews with other sex workers, detectives found out that the previous month she had been picked up by a guy named Steve a few times. He apparently paid well and came off as friendly to some while others didn't think so. Jenny was Steve's type. She was well endowed in the chest and she didn't seem to shy away from some of the fetishes he liked to act out with his dates, such as tying them up and playing with their feet while he masturbated. Jenny would have had no idea his regular fetishes would become so violent and ultimately end her life. They also interviewed the people who worked at the shop with Rogers to get a sense of how they perceived him. One woman said they had a great brother-sister relationship and they often ate lunch together. She seemed shocked that he would be investigated for such a crime. She did indicate that he was far more comfortable talking to women than he was with men. She mentioned that she had been in his truck before, but never saw anything inappropriate, any kind of weapons or alcohol bottles or anything. After speaking with her, they talked to another employee who worked with Rogers. He, too, was shocked by the allegations and said that he had never seen him lose his temper and he wasn't known to carry weapons. He had even gone fishing with him before on the Malala River. He did go on to say that Rogers seemed to be really into the nightlife and even once picked up another woman when they were out together. 
He also knew that Dayton was a heavy drinker. He mentioned that he drank frequently and liked sweet drinks like vodka and orange juice. This frequent drinking was corroborated by a woman who worked at a Woodburn OLCC store. She said Dayton was a regular coming in two to three times per week, and he always purchased multiple mini bottles of vodka. A week after the murder, detectives got a call from someone who claimed to have information to share. This was an acquaintance of Sherry Rogers' father, Roy Miller. He claimed that they had talked to Roy and he mentioned finding some suspicious things in their wood stove at the shop. Roy wasn't sure what to do and was very frantic, so his friend agreed to call the police on his behalf. Apparently, Roy had gotten a phone call from Rogers, probably while he was in jail, and he had asked him if the police had come to search the shop and whether or not they took anything with him. He said they had and that they might have. In response to this, Rogers was eerily quiet. So once he was off the phone with him, Roy decided to do his own search, and he went through the ashes of the wood stove, where he ended up finding several suspicious items, including what looked like bra hooks. Investigators went back through the ashes that Roy Miller had described and ended up finding quite a bit of evidence. They found, quote, five belt buckles, two long metal springs, metal shanks from at least five shoes, several buttons, four star-shaped grommets, earrings, a number of bra hooks, fasteners, strap adjusters, a burned tennis shoe, and other women's effects. I mentioned before that the lab testing on the evidence taken from Jenny's body wasn't abundant and there, there weren't really any signs of semen, but they did find hairs in Roger's truck that were similar to Jenny's body hair. But as we know, hair isn't a strong link. The evidence taken from the stove at a shop, however, did a lot more when it came to connecting him to her. Only one of Jenny's shoes was found at the crime scene, and items in the ash of the stove revealed a shoe that had similar components to the one police had from the scene. The shoe shank, eyelets, and lace fasteners found in the ash appeared to match the shoe exactly, indicating that someone, Dayton Rogers, had Jenny's shoe after the attack and put it into the stove to burn the evidence. There was plenty of evidence when they eventually went to trial in February of 1988. The prosecution was out to prove that Dayton Leroy Rogers had bizarre sexual fantasies, including bondage and masturbation, and he always had the intent to inflict physical pain on women. And that need led him to pick up Jenny Smith with the intent to kill her. The defense wasn't arguing that Rogers didn't kill Jenny, but they were claiming that he killed her by accident because he was defending himself against her when she attacked him with a knife, attempting to rob him of the cash in his wallet. But they would definitely have their work cut out for them trying to prove that to the jury. Prosecution kicked off the trial with witness testimony from all of the witnesses that essentially saw the attack and watched Jenny die. They described what they saw, what they heard, and the utter violence left all over her body. They also showed graphic images of Jenny's wounds and went into detail about how she had been tortured before being murdered. Criminologists detailed every cut slash fingerprint, the evidence found all over the car, his lies about his dominant hand were even questioned, defense claiming that he was ambidextrous. But more damning was that the Rogers household had the Regency Sheffield knife set, conveniently missing one with a four-inch blade. Mm. Idiot. 
During the trial, the judge also allowed testimony from Rogers' previous victims, the girls he picked up off the streets and the sex workers that he frequented. This was essentially because this would allow the prosecution to show a pattern of behavior and that Rogers had an intent to kill when he picked up Jenny the night he murdered her. The 15-year-old girl he had stabbed told her story through tears, describing how he was sweet and caring at first, and then after he had sex with her, he stabbed her, even lifting her shirt to show her six-inch scar to the jury. Another witness, the 19-year-old who was visiting her boyfriend at prison, described her ordeal, how he hogtied and raped her. His former parole officer from his 1976 coercion conviction described how he tied up two teen girls at knife point and how he planned to do it again and leave no victims. A 17-year-old former sex worker, Carol, described how Rogers had tortured her in the march prior to Jenny's death. Rogers had focused primarily on her breasts, pinching them so hard he drew blood. He also sliced her heel with a knife and threatened to cut her breasts off and strangle her. Other sex workers described how though a few ladies would go on dates with Rogers, many feared him. To them, he always said his name was Steve, but they called him Steve the Gambler on the streets, and a lot of ladies avoided him because he had weird fetishes and enjoyed causing pain. He only seemed to be aroused when he was inflicting pain. This was the case of the several girls and women who had dates with Rogers and somehow made it out without serious injuries after his kinky sex bondage, and foot fetishes would randomly become violent. He often used knives to cut them, leaving them scarred and scared for their lives. They, of course, went through all of the evidence, too. The wood stove ashes evidence and even the blood and fingerprints found on his truck that matched fingerprints from Jenny. As the trial went on, it quickly became obvious that Dayton Rogers was going to be found guilty of this crime. The question was, were they going to kill him for it? After two weeks and 13 hours of jury deliberation, Dayton Leroy Rogers was found guilty of aggravated murder. This, of course, would be followed by a penalty phase. After another two weeks and five hours of deliberation considering additional testimony and arguments, the same jury agreed that Rogers deliberately killed Jenny and it was an unreasonable response to any provocation by the victim. They then rejected the prosecution's request for the death penalty due to one person who would not vote for it. It had to be unanimous, and instead they offered a sentence of life in prison. The jury did find it laughable that Rogers claimed to be acting out in self-defense, but they also believed that the murder was not deliberate. He didn't have the intent to kill her when he went out to pick up a date that night. Shockingly, they also believed that he was unlikely to commit violent crimes in the future. The jury? Yeah, which might make us scoff, especially due to the several witnesses that talked about how he tortured them. What the fuck? I know. Now, here's the thing, though. They were totally unaware of what was going on outside of the trial. A bombshell discovery that had it been allowed in the trial may have changed their verdict. But this wouldn't be the last time that a jury might get their chance to put Rogers to death. While Rogers sat in jail awaiting his trial for the murder of Jenny Smith and investigators started sifting through his life like they did the wood stove ashes, something new came to light. Something that might help illuminate why so many items were found in that stove. That summer following his arrest, 
police made the grisly discovery of several bodies in the Malala Forest, a place that Dayton Leroy Rogers was very familiar with. Next week, I'll conclude this story and tell you all about the Malala Forest discovery and how Dayton Leroy Rogers was connected to it. What do you think? What was the time difference ballpark between him attacking the two teenage girls and killing Jenny? A few years. He was at it for a few years. But it's just like, how can you, first off, it should have been attempted murder. So how can you get charged for something and then you plead not guilty by reason of insanity? And they're like, okay. And then a couple years later, it's worse. And suddenly the insanity has gone away. To me, it comes back to two things. Like was he was um, people have said he was very smart. So growing up, he had people that said he's abnormally smart. So was he contrived and telling the psychiatrist what he think they needed to hear to not put him in jail. Right. Or was he actually sick and experiencing some sort of schizophrenia? I don't really know, but I think until the psych the psychiatrist looked and reviewed him, they didn't officially let him plead anything. So each case was treated separately. And I'm not sure if they even talked about his previous crimes at every trial. You know, a lot of times that's not allowed. Right. Which and I get it, it's you know, again the argument of saying mental health and it's like okay maybe he had schizophrenia but he wasn't some person who had extreme schizophrenia no because he had a life who had been kicked out to the street and was wielding weapons and was a danger to themselves or other people because i don't think i don't think it's true because he held down a job he was good at his job even his but that's common i mean there are a lot of people i mean i know people that have schizophrenia and be it, when they're medicated. Yes. And be it because it's mild or because they there's manage no, their medications. There's but. no evidence that he was medicated. I, I, I really don't like I I understand that a lot of crime are have to do with mental illness. I don't think this is that's real. what I'm saying. Yeah, it's I just agree. like you can't you can't have it both ways. He yep. can't be doing it because he's mentally ill and then not found guilty because he's mentally ill, but then yeah. can be free or and, can be whatever. Like And like I said, I don't know if they could allow any of his previous history to be talked about, right. but we are also at a time where there was no digital records. And mental health, it's like, oh, you have schizophrenia? You're probably a murderer. Yeah. So like, oh yeah, I having had a that at stereotype. all, yeah, having that at all in his realm, I, I get that back then it would have been seen that way, but. Yeah. Damn. This is it's crazy to me that somebody could have a what 20 year history of yeah. violently hurting people and finally get caught for something. You know what and I like, mean? Like, and like violent, not just I mean, not that hitting someone isn't violent or punching someone isn't violent or whatever, but that's an extreme. Well, in one bringing of the, a knife to the situation, one of the articles I had read said that he actually stabbed her in the vagina. But when I read the autopsy findings, that was not referenced. Mm. So I don't know if maybe that's someone else or what. But yeah. just the the violent act toward a woman like that. I mean, that's he definitely should have been put well, even away. Just I stabbing mean, a 15 year old girl. I say even a, like a single stab as if that's less or not a thing. But like even doing that. Like I'm making out with this teenager and then suddenly I'm stabbing her raping schoolgirls in the middle of the day. Like, yeah, I don't understand this how he extreme. could be constantly written off like, oh, he'll grow out of it. Jeez. And to have those witnesses. I'm very curious because um, we were talking in our group chat last night about the Casey Anthony thing on Peacock and how for me, 
it helped me to understand how she was found not guilty. It doesn't change how I feel about her or what I think happened, but I understand that there's some serious reasonable doubt. So I get that. And it makes me wonder what was presented to this jury alongside the witnesses and the victims and the parole officer and all these people that are like, he's extremely dangerous. It makes me wonder how was that taken that they were like, no. I'm honestly wondering if half those previous trials before this murder trial even took place. Were they just pleas without having to do trial and just go before a judge and enter your plea? Yeah, probably. I think so. I mean, it's just the way they treated rape and children yeah. Decades ago makes me glad to have not been a bit older. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't want to live through that. Yeah. it The misogyny is just dripping. Ugh. Yeah, and just how he gets chance after chance after chance I after know. chance. Oh, so frustrating. And I've heard of... I've heard of him. I've heard his name. I've heard his But he's not all nickname, that talked about, But right? I, don't, I don't know his story, so, so I don't know what's going to be happening. One of two... I don't want to give it away. Don't do it. Especially because there may be other listeners who don't know it either. I know. Yeah, no, I want to wait in here. For there sure. are there is at least one big podcast that I know has covered this, but, but it was when they first started like mm. years ago. So I um, I don't know how many of our listeners know this guy, but we yeah. have had a, quite a few ask for it. And I yeah. said, I promise I'll do it. Yeah. So here we are. Well, I'm and uh, as usual, quite pissed from your story. I know. Uh, but looking forward to next week to hear that hopefully they found enough of whatever that he is away for a long time yeah so for our patreon listeners i referenced the letter if you are a patreon listener i am going to read this letter in its entirety and you can find it at any level you can go find it and it will be posted on thursday She's a little low for me, and I'm loud in my ears. I hear her. Oh, Oh, there I am. Hi. (laughs) Mm -hmm. There I am. Could I get an overall turn down of everyone? Hello, hello, hello. A turn down or a turn off? Oh, a turnover. That's good. Thank you. Oh, I love a good turnover. Apple or cherry? Um, cherry. Oh, cherry popping good. One of the hobbies that I took up over COVID, well, COVID. Oh no, Susan! Susan, Susan fucking left. <laughs> I'm not under. <laughs> <laughs> For about ninety nine percent of the time, we truly look. Fuck. <laughs> and he quickly surveyed the dark park parking lot. Mm. I'm from Boston. <laughs> Pack the cat, motherfucker. She was coughing and spluttering. Her body had. It's not. I looked it up. They're two different words. Meaning one is the same, meaning two is different. Yeah. Whoa. Shocking, right? I'm upset. <laughs> <clears throat> Shout out to Tilda Jean. Tilda! Like below deck, but on land. Exactly. Oh, that's fine. But with Lindsay Lohan every few scenes. While eight were on the anterior side. And Lisa. Nope. Jenna. <laughs> <laughs> Who frequented area? Who frequented? Oh my god! Who frequented? Oh my god! How do I say it? There's an N. Frink, Freak, frequented. <laughs> frequented. Frequented. Fre- oh my frequented. god! It is so hard. Help. Okay. Was a sex worker who frequented? Air- oh my god! Frequent. Frequented. 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 Uh, it sounds so weird. Yeah. Frequented. 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 So like freak. 
went id frequented frequented i'm saying it right right now you okay are. let's try it <clears throat> frequented was a sex worker who frequented air oh, no it's done what's a, what's another word what's a cinnamon who often, cinnamon who often went cinnamon. to yep often we got a winner give me some cinnamon it's got a q in it for god's sake wait i'm gonna try it one more time you ever seen that Free. sort of letter <laughs> it's got a tail was a sex worker who frequented frequented yeah that's right was a sex worker who frequented oh my god this is embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Okay, was the other, what was the other option? Who often, often went to or often was often seen. worked. There you go. And that is professional <laughs> podcasting. In junior high, he did get cheese, <clears throat> cheese, macaroni and cheese. By age eighteen, he moved to Eugene, or as I wrote, Yugoon. <laughs> <laughs> So he was moved into minimum. Nope. And despite the fact that he was took the opportunity of Dayton's hospitalization, hospitalization. (laughs) (laughs) It sounds legit, too. He took a knife out of his glove box. Glove. He then reached into the glove box. I did it again. Detectives asked and he was. Nope. (laughs) Sorry. Detectives Detectives asked, and he was forthcoming, that he had been drinking up all night. Nope. (laughs) I don't know what's going on. Read the words, Emily. You did. Check his glove box. (laughs) Fuck you. (laughs) Detectives asked if he was... Oh, my God! I needed just a minute. Detectives asked when he was... Oh, my God. It's right there. I see the letters. I know how to read. Oh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> my burps are weird. Uh, There's no sentence. <laughs> Period. Whoa, I need to go to bed. This frequent, this, here I go again. This frequent drinking was, col- take a breath. I'm going to read this word, bitch. But they did find hairs in Roger's truck that were microscopically, oh. they did find hairs in Roger's truck. Oh. Read the goddamn sentence that you wrote. Other sex workers described how... <laughs> it's... What the fuck? It's like I'm trying to do a box jump and I can't hit the top, you know? Keep trying. No. no. Slap the bitch. Slap, Slap the mic. Murder in the Rain is a Cascade Media production. Written and hosted by Emily Rowney, Alicia Holland, and Josh McCullough. Edited by Josh McCullough. You can always contact us at murderintherain at gmail.com or through our website, murderintherain.com. If you just can't get enough of Murder in the Rain, for as little as $5 a month, you'll have exclusive access to bonus episodes at patreon.com. You can find us on all of the socials, and for more true crime, follow at M underscore Murder in the Rain on TikTok, and you can also listen to Alicia and Josh on their other show, Always Be My Sisters. And suck my balls. <laughs> <laughs>